Matthew chapter 10 this morning. But before we get there, I have a few things to talk to you about and share with you. You got my email this last week. I made a comment in it that um, I'm curious when it was that pastors started to believe that we were not allowed to speak truth in the pulpit. That we had to keep politics and religion separated. That the threat of a church losing its tax-exempt status was enough to silence the truth. Well, I'm not worried about that threat. And this morning we're going to talk politics and religion. And some of you might be offended. I hope not. And I hope if... Anything I share with you today is offensive to you, that that you won't stand up and walk out in a huff, uh, that you will hang out afterwards and talk to me about it, and and we can can discuss things and look into things. Tuesday is election day, as you all know. Many of you probably have already voted. If you haven't, I hope that you do. But I want to talk to you about a little bit about the choices. What's funny is, is to think that, uh, that, it's, that it could be possibly my influence that would sway you one way or the other. I, I, I pray that you all are thinking people, that you are thinking believers in Christ. And if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, then, then pay close attention to the whole thing. Because I, I think you're going to hear some truth that will resonate with your heart about who this person Jesus really is. But I want to talk about this because I think... If nothing else, the church in the world is here to speak truth. If nothing else, in in the name of Jesus and with all the love and compassion of our Father, we are to be a light in the darkness. Amen? And this I understand to be true, and yet so often we we kind of sit back in fear. We think, well, we don't have to make waves. And I, I think we need to make some waves. I think people need... To be aware, because if all the pulpits are silent and all the churches are quiet, then truth begins to be something of the furniture, kind of something accepted and assumed. But eventually that furniture gets unused as new things are brought in and change is proclaimed. The truth doesn't change. I I got an email this week. And I'll tell you right, right now, I, I apologize to you all for not talking about this two weeks ago or a month ago. Because I needed to. But I got an email this week that offended me when I first read it. And then it convicted me. And uh, as I shared first hour after reading Oswald Chambers, then it encouraged me. <laughs> if you're curious what I mean by that, check out my utmost for his highest. Yesterday and today's entries were uh, pretty poignant. But... Here's the email. It's written to churchgoers, synagogue members, and religious laity from Rabbi Yehuda Levine and Dr. O'Neill Dozier. Now, you can do more follow-up on this. In fact, I encourage you to, before I even read it, go to www.thejudeo-christianview.com. www.thejudeo-christianview.com. And there's some information there that especially for those of you who have not voted yet, you need to check out before you go to the polls. Here's the letter. As your pastor, rabbi, or priest yet explained to your congregation, 
that Senator Barack Obama supports U.S. expansion of tax-funded partial birth abortion. Now, I'm not telling you anything that he hasn't said, okay? Or that he hasn't outwardly supported. Senator Obama, you know, the Democratic presidential nominee, supports U.S. expansion of tax-funded partial birth abortion. What is that? It's a procedure that involves piercing the skull of an infant at full-term delivery and vacuuming out its brains before it's delivered from the woman's body. Why, the letter says, is your pastor silent about this? If Herod were running for king today, if your religious leader knew of the slaughter ahead and recognized that it is perfectly safe and legal to speak out in the USA, would he or she even say one word? Has your worship leader told your congregation what Senator Obama's new sexual orientation law will actually mean? This is double convicting for me because I'm the worship leader too. (laughs) Why not? Has your shepherd explained that Senator Obama favors full repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act, which protects your state from forced recognition of same-sex marriages from other states? What's his excuse? Has your shepherd explained that Senator Obama favors full integration of flagrant practicing homosexuals into the U.S. armed forces and military barracks? Our military women aren't required to bunk and bathe with male soldiers. Is it appropriate to force this kind of intimacy on any of our troops? What about morale and U.S. security? Is your pastor saying anything about this? Has your pastor, rabbi, or priest shown your congregation the tasteful interfaith video sermon which connects these facts with Scripture? Or shown you the graphic version. I haven't. Judeochristianview.com. You can download it and you will be shocked at what you see. Why would a congregational leader not apply the Bible so? Has your shepherd seen and relayed the eyewitness video account regarding Obama and the killing of infant abortion survivors in Illinois? How in heaven's name can pulpit silence on this possibly be rationalized? Has your clerical leadership bothered to get the facts, to verify the documentation? Does your shepherd even care about the truth or about shepherding his flock? How? Has your pastor or bishop tacitly rejected Martin Luther King's plea to judge by the content of a man's character rather than by the color of his skin? Is reverse racism or white guilt inspiring shameful pulpit silence on the Torah, Tanakh, and New Testament issues of same-sex unions and child sacrifice? Does your pastor or rabbi even have a clue regarding his First Amendment free exercise, free speech rights to teach the Bible and tradition from pulpit to pew while clearly explaining policies of political leaders and naming names? Is there any reason why he or she would prefer ignorance? Has your pastor, rabbi, or father joined the courageous signatories yet? Has he offered up a single prayer seeking Senator Obama's repentance for these policies? So desperately at odds with Scripture. Has your shepherd spoken even one clear word on these monumental matters from the pulpit? Is your shepherd a man of God or just a holy pontificator, a church mouse, or a wimp? And it's signed Shalom. <laughs> Rabbi Yehuda Levine and Dr. Anil Dozier. www.thejudeo-christianview.com I encourage you to check it out. We are at a critical time in our nation's history. And I don't speak that from a pundit's platform. And I don't speak it as one saying, be a Republican or be a Democrat. 
I could really care less how you're registered. But I speak it as one who has been tasked with the charge of teaching the Word of God. And the Word of God, gang, is a word of absolutes. And the Word of God teaches truth. And these issues that I've referred to in the letter are moral issues. And what fascinates me in this political campaign is these moral issues have hardly been touched. (coughs) They've been sidestepped and skirted. The abortion debate, guys, it's still out there. Roe v. Wade still sits on the books. Which means this morning, children are still being aborted freely with the full support of the United States government and its people. There are moral issues at stake here that whether our culture appreciates them or not, have not changed. God does not determine His direction based on culture. He doesn't sit around, as I shared last week, as the latest statement coming out of the emergent church, we'll just wait five or six years and see where homosexuality goes. That's not what God does. He doesn't just wait and say, well, let's see what the people want. Because I want to be relevant to them. Truth is relevant in all times to all people. And what we have in the Holy Scriptures is truth. Absolute. And verifiable. We're going to talk about some of these things, but I want to talk about them in the context of Scripture. I... uh, I realize that I have the option as a pastor of, of teaching topical lessons. And I could do a, an election topic this morning. The truth is, I didn't plan to. But as I read our study, where we're at in Matthew chapter 10, I was amazed at how it applies to right where our nation is right now. The connection between America and the nation of Israel. When the nation of Israel first saw the first coming of Jesus Christ. Where they were then, where we are now. There's a dramatic connection. And so because I feel confident that the Lord can teach these things better than I can, we're going to stick right here in Matthew chapter 10. Look at some things and, and consider them. I, I encourage you to consider them in light of where we are as a nation, of what voting choice you are going to make. Again, if you haven't voted, and please, don't let Tuesday go by without voting. And don't let Tuesday go by without voting, not just your conscience, but voting by the Spirit of Christ. Let morality and values Biblical values be the standard by which you vote. Not your tax return. Not your wallet. Not because you're tired of the same old, same old, and we just want to see something different. Let your voting be based on Jesus Christ. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Freely you received, freely give. Fathers, we deal with this text this morning. As we study through the Word, I pray for conviction. I pray that we would be challenged to the very core of our being as to where we stand as to the reality of our place in history and our role in it. 
I ask, Holy Spirit, that Your words would go beyond the words that can come out of my mouth, that Your words would dig deep into each of our hearts and would pierce us and teach us. And Father, that Your Word would remain, that we would be active doers of Your Word and not just people who profess to know this Christian thing. Make it real, Father. And give us the strength to walk it out in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible, this library of 66 books, from Genesis to Revelation, is a single story. Now, I grew up in a church where there was a lot of kind of a potpourri approach to the Bible. Maybe you did too. Where you got this story or that story, and you weren't sure if you were in the Old Testament or the New. You didn't know if Jesus came after Abraham or where Moses fit into the picture or did Noah, did, did Noah get the law or who built the ark. I mean, the whole thing, it, it was hard to kind of piece together. And I've learned over the years, especially through our time together in this fellowship, studying through the Bible, you begin to discover it is a single, integrated, synthesized whole. It is not some random, contradictory collection of sayings and stories. From the beginning of Scripture, it is laid out. From the creation of man, right in the opening pages, the sin of man and man's need for a sacrifice. It is laid out as God brings the law to the people of Israel. The man cannot attain to the perfection that is required if you want to be in the presence of our Creator. It's shown us that that leads us eventually to the person of Jesus Christ, who is that perfect sacrifice, who did die for us, and who makes a way for us to live eternally with God the Father. It is a single story. And in this single story, there is a divine intention on the part of Jesus that is absolutely clear. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture was a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God's word, not man's word. God spoke, God inspired that being the case, we should see clearly an interrelated connection here between the Hebrew prophecies of old and the life of Christ in the New Testament. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we should see Jesus living out and playing out the very promises of Messiah that are spoken of so clearly in Hebrew Scripture. The Bible students remember, Matthew does this consistently. He quotes the Hebrew prophets again and again chapter to chapter, you go back and there's a quote of Old Testament prophecy. In fact, if you're reading in the New American Standard Bible that I'm teaching out of, you'll see those words, uh, many capitalized, you know those little capital letters, it'll be written like that and that's a hint, oh this is a prophecy, this is drawn back from something else. Matthew is now quoting from the Hebrew prophets. What I'm driving at here though, as Matthew consistently quotes these prophets making the case for Jesus as the promised Messiah, I'm driving at the divine intention of God. There is a divine intentionality with Jesus Christ. He has a purpose for what He laid out, not only in Scripture. In fact, His overarching plan spans eternity. His his overarching concept here, it bridges history. And in fact, it even reaches to you and me. That's stunning, gang. The plan of God that is vast and eternal is intimate 
and personal. It's for each and every one of us as if you were the only person who existed. Years ago, a bumper sticker uh, was handed to me. I loved it. It says, "Jesus, uh, I'm Jesus' favorite. <laughs> I got it. And I went, well, yeah, of course. I am. And every one of us can claim that promise. I am his favorite. I, am his, I don't even have to say you are his favorite. You say I am his favorite because you are. How is that possible? With God, all things are possible, especially that truth. From eternity to personally, Jesus has an intention for us. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You know what the Hebrews used to believe? Possibly still do? That when one person was murdered, the murderer was guilty of thousands of murders because at the murder or death of that person, you killed everyone that would have come from their body. Put that in terms of abortion today. It's not a single individual child. That is horrible enough. But it's generations of people that would have come from that body. And the Bible says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Read that whole psalm, Psalm 139. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. At what point in that knitting together do we have the right to take it out? But I want you to consider this implication. His eyes saw me unformed, and in my book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Stop and consider the Lord, who is as vast as eternity, who stands above history, has intentions for little me. We, we went to mountain camp this week, Hayden and I did. Had a good time, huh? Marching and hiking through the woods for hours on end. and We really had a great time. And, and as we were there with Hayden's fifth grade class and another fifth grade class, a sea of fifth graders, we uh, got down to the first evening after hiking and gathered around a campfire. Now, I love campfire. I grew up going to Christian camp and singing all the camp songs, so I was looking forward to that. And, and we sang a song, all right. It was a song called, My Roots Go Down. My Roots Go Down. My Roots Go Down to the Ground. My Roots Go Down. And the first verse of the song, which the ranger was very excited to share with us, is, I am a frog swimming in a pond. I am a frog swimming in a pond. My roots go down. What do you think we're singing? What do you think the implication is? I'm rooted to that first blob of goo that climbed up out of the primordial soup and first cried. And I'm, I am not a frog swimming in a pond. My roots do not go down. My roots go up. I have a connection to the Creator of all things. In fact, I have a fantastic place in creation. Listen to this. David wrote in Psalm 8, verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet, you've made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, even the frogs. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. My roots do not go down. My roots go up to the Father. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I understand, and I'm pointing this out because we see the divine intention of Jesus Christ for each and every one of us proclaimed clearly in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus steps from first to last when He 
planted his first little bare foot as a child on the, on the soil of earth to the very last step he took just before they laid him out on the cross to then the steps he took, actually more steps after that, the last step he took before he lifted off of the Mount of Olives ascending to heaven, every step of Jesus Christ was intentional and on purpose. He was never reckless. His words were never careless. His ministry never haphazard. We come to Matthew chapter 10, and it's amazing to me that it just continues to flow with intention and purpose and clarity. I want to back up just a little bit to get into the context of chapter 10. Look at verse 35 of chapter 9. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Who has synagogues, by the way? Jews. Jews, okay, good. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. At this time, think about this, where was Jesus territorially? He was in the Galilee. He was moving from synagogue to synagogue, town to town. And I've told you before, there was kind of the, the uh, triangle, the ministry triangle of Jesus. It included three primary cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. And you need to remember that because they'll be mentioned here in a couple of chapters in a very surprising way. But he would go between these cities, primarily this little location on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and teaching and healing and, and doing his ministry. Walking among those people... In verse 36, it says of the people that seeing them, he felt compassion for them. Because they were, like, they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Who are these sheep without a shepherd? Again, they're mostly Israel. There are there a few people come down from Syria, a few from the Decapolis, but the large body of people Jesus is ministering to here are Israelites, Jews. Verse 37. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So who were the first workers into the field? Close. Not the disciples. The apostles. Now, what's the difference, Rick? They're called both, right? Yeah, they are. A disciple can be an apostle. Actually, an apostle can be a disciple, but a disciple is not necessarily an apostle. Jesus had hundreds of disciples. There were people who were all gathered around Him. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, as He goes up the mount to, to begin proclaiming the Sermon on the Mount that we spent some time looking at recently. It tells us when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. The word disciple there is mathetos, and it just means student. And all these people, throngs of people, crowds, of people were discipled by Jesus or were His disciples following Him. That's important to understand. Because now He chooses twelve few, not just as disciples, but as apostles. And apostolos in the Greek means sent to represent. Sent to represent. These were to be representatives now of Jesus. Not just followers saying, yeah, I listen to that guy. Yeah, he's got some cool things to say. These are people who now would have the authority to speak for Him. To share His Word, His message, His promise of the Kingdom. Sent to represent. And gang, that I believe is the call to you and me as well. The apostolic call. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are not sent to represent ourselves. We are sent to represent Jesus. 
We are sent to be His representative, to represent His interests and not our own. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul said, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. And I'll tell you something, gang. If the church is silent in the world, who is speaking for God? Where are the words coming from? We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. Unfortunately, we get far too easily hung up on our own personal causes and church agendas. We start thinking about our interests, the interest of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. Well, we better not involve ourselves with that because that's not in our best interest. Yeah, but is it in the interest of the King? Is it what the King wants us to do? Is it Jesus' interest? I'll tell you what, if the taking apart of the Bridge Christian Fellowship and dispersing us in all other places in the end of this church was His intention, His interest, we should do it. It's not about us. Now take a moment and think about these apostles, these men sent to represent. Luke 6 tells us that Jesus chose them after spending the whole night in prayer. He really dug in on this one. And so we meet Peter. It's always the first one on the list. You'd expect the Pope to be first. A leader among leaders. But also, uh, Peter was the apostle who suffered from chronic athlete's tongue. I mean, it was bad with this guy. <laughs> the sickness, the disease with him. His foot was always in his mouth. Now, I've got to ask you, are any of you like that? You know, speak first and think later? Oh, i got words coming out. You know, you can't stop yourself until later when you, you, you think about what you said. Oh, man, why can't I just shut up? I've had that conversation with me. Just shut up, Rick. It'll be better for everybody. Well, that was Peter. You know what cracks me up about Peter? Originally, his name was Simon Shimon in the Hebrew. Shimon means heard or loud. It's a perfect name for him. Because every time Jesus opens his mouth in the Gospels, he blurts things out. Most of the time, it's just kind of stupid stuff that he's just not thinking. Sometimes it's stuff that he doesn't even know what he's saying, as in Matthew chapter 16, which we're going to come to in a few weeks, where Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I read that and go, yeah, Peter had great faith. No. Jesus says, Peter, bless you for saying that, but uh, you weren't smart enough to figure that one out on your own. (laughs) The reason you said that is my father told you to say it, and just before you open your mouth about probably to say something else, God told you what to say and you blurted that out. You're the son of the living God. (laughs) That's Peter, and I love Peter. I love Peter. Because this same man would open his mouth powerfully for Jesus Christ in a very short time from being called an apostle. Andrew was Peter's little brother. First, he was a follower of John the Baptist. And he's the one, actually, who brought Peter to the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 40 says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Mashiach, Messiah, Christ, anointed one. I think we need a few more Andrews. You know, men who, while Peter's shooting off his mouth, are quietly bringing people to the Lord. This is what we see in Andrew. We don't hear anything recorded that he said, but we see what he did. He led his brother to Christ, among others. James and John were brothers, the next two of the apostles, who Jesus would comically nickname Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder because they wanted to call down fire on an unbelieving city. 
These guys had an anger problem. You know, they walk out of the city, they've just preached the gospel of the kingdom, the city rejects them, and James and John are, they're like, alright, okay, bring it on. We got, can we just call down some fire on this place and just take them out? Let's Sodom and Gomorrah this, this town. And Jesus goes, sons of thunder, which I'm going to call you from now on, you know, the fire brothers. So, looking at these guys, um, we understand something else about James and John. They end up bookending the apostolic age. James will be the first apostle to be martyred. John will be the last apostle to live. And that great age of faith that was in between the two would be seen and understood. So we've got a loud mouth, a little brother, and two brothers with explosive tempers, and this after a night of prayer. Read on. (laughs) The fifth apostle is Philip, the sixth is Bartholomew, the seventh Thomas, and the eighth is Matthew. After three years, three years of walking with Jesus, watching the miracles, seeing the walking on water, the raising of the dead, after three years of this, Philip still isn't sure who Jesus was. He still wasn't convinced. John 14.8, Philip said to him, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, he said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now some of you Bible students might know Bartholomew as another name for Nathaniel, or Hebrew Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is the one who, when learning Jesus was from Nazareth, said in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, think about this list of guys. Loudmouth, little brother, two brothers with explosive tempers, the guy who had trouble believing or understanding who Jesus was, and a guy who's a bigot. I mean, this is a great list so far. And then there's Thomas the doubter, and Matthew the tax collector, who worked for Rome's IRS. And by the way, it's interesting, Matthew, in his listing of the apostles, calls himself Matthew the tax collector. In Mark and Luke, they don't say he was a tax collector. Not in the listing of the apostles. Suddenly he's just Levi. Why would Matthew write it when the other guys didn't? Why wouldn't you just leave that behind? I think, gang, it's because Matthew wants people to remember where he came from. So that people wouldn't elevate him. Matthew the apostle. No, 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 no. Remember, I was Matthew the tax collector. I was like an outcast fringe guy before Jesus found me. Then we've got another James the ninth of the apostles. He's sometimes called James the Lesser, which I think is a wonderful title to aspire to. James the Lesser, and then there's Thaddeus, and there's another Simon. The second James and Thaddeus are complete unknowns to us, except that they're listed among the apostles. Great men, but in Scripture, we don't know anything else about them. Simon the Zealot. (laughs) Simon the Zealot was anti-Rome, anti-establishment, a political rabble-rouser. He was the Ralph Nader of his day. Okay? (laughs) Among the apostles, he was the guy who was stirring it up, and he just, you know, poor Nader. You know, someday we just ought to vote for him to give the guy a shot. (laughs) But Simon the Zealot, this anti-Rome activist, was stuck in the same list, maybe you've heard this before, with Matthew, the tax collector. The conversations between these guys, the sparks, it must have flown. Fascinating. I'm sure they had some fun. Of course, we get to the 12th man on the list, Judas Iscariot. Iscariot just means the man from Kariot. And he will forever have the infamous title of betrayer. Full night of prayer. And this is what Jesus came up with. These 12 guys. Would you have picked them? Not me. 
I would have prayed all night, God, bring the righteous. Bring those guys who are clean and and holy and perfect before You. Surround me with good-looking people. (laughs) Please. As I used to pray, give me a wife who makes me look better. You know? Thank you, Lord, for that one. You know what I love most about this list? I could have made it. Somewhere between Judas, Matthew, Loudmouth Peter, I could be on this list. So could you. But Jesus saw something in these 12 guys that would be revealed later. It wasn't a power, it wasn't a strength, it wasn't intelligence. Jesus saw something in them and that was an openness to His Holy Spirit. Guys who would function by His power not by their own. I, I love this verse. 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul writes, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, I want you to think about where you were when Jesus called you. A bunch of lamos <laughs> And losers. How would you feel if I said that to you on a Sunday morning? You guys, remember how stupid you used to be? <laughs> how lost and dumb... And pathetic. Remember that as you go forward. (laughs) So Paul says this, and this ragtag band of unexpected recruits become the first ones out into the field of harvest. And note this, gang. Tradition tells us that each one of them, with the exception of John, who received the revelation, and Judas, who hung himself, each one of these guys would be martyred as followers of Jesus. Peter, reportedly crucified upside down because he didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. Andrew was crucified during the reign of President Nero. At his trial, when threatened with crucifixion, Andrew was reported to say the following, I would not have preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. I don't know where our country is headed. Is it conceivable that this country could flip so upside down that Christianity could be persecuted to that extreme? We saw it just a few generations ago in Germany, gang. And yeah, it is possible. These guys amaze me. James was beheaded about three years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. He was hardly an apostle for much time at all. And I mention that because his brother John lived longer than any of the apostles without his brother. Don't don't think that these martyrdoms were easy. Every time one of these twelve, one of these eleven after Judas hung himself, each time they would hear of the martyrdom of a brother, that they walked with Jesus, they shared something nobody else shared. It would have been devastating. And not a one of them stopped walking. Not one of them gave up their faith. Oh Lord, how can you do that? How can you take James out of my life? That's not fair. No, see, John would say, it's not about me. I represent Christ. John himself was purported to have been boiled in hot oil and he didn't die. And if that's the case, my assumption is that he would have borne horrible scars on his flesh for the rest of his days after that happened. Since he didn't die, they exiled him to Patmos, thinking that would shut him up. And Jesus gave him the revelation on that small island. Love how God works. Philip was stoned, but he didn't die in the stoning, so they crucified him. Bartholomew was flayed alive, 
crucified, and finally beheaded. Thomas was martyred as a missionary in India, doubting Thomas. Ended up farther out than just about any of the apostles. He died a martyr there. Matthew, of the gospel that we're reading, was run through with a spear. James was thrown, James the lesser, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. And he survived the fall. And so he was clubbed and beaten to death on the ground. All the while praying for the salvation of his attackers. Thaddeus was beaten to death with a club. Simon was crucified or possibly sawed in half. The difference here is remarkable. These guys who were called out of fishing and tax collecting in the Galilee, political activists, a weird group of guys, become the seed of the early church. It said that the blood of martyrs is seed. And because they were so convinced and convicted, what would make men die like this? If not an absolute belief in the truth. And these men were the first ones commissioned to the harvest. Don't forget, the greatness of each of them is not because of who they were, it's because of who the Spirit of Christ was in them. And with the power of His Holy Spirit on them, they were able to walk and not worry about anything. And I really wonder today if it all caved in on us on Tuesday. If it all fell apart... Would we have the strength of the power of the Spirit in us to stand and to walk and to proclaim Jesus louder than before? When you think that the voice of Christians in America is now going to be silenced because President Bush's term is over? Is that where our connection was? Now think through this. Where was it that Jesus sent these representatives? Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Many of you are familiar with what's called the Great Commission. It comes at the end of Matthew's, Mark's, Luke's, John's Gospels, the beginning of the book of Acts. The Great Commission where Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. But this isn't the Great Commission. This is the First Commission. And the first commission was sent first to Israel. Note that, gang. Jot it down if you're a note taker. The first commission was sent first to Israel. Ironside in his commentary, and it's a great commentary, I would encourage if you're looking for good biblical commentary, pick up the Ironside series. He wrote, In order to understand rightly the calling and mission of the twelve, prior to our Lord's crucifixion, We need to bear in mind that the Lord Jesus Christ was presenting Himself to Israel as their promised King. God was dealing with Israel as a nation, giving them full opportunity to acknowledge and accept the claims of His Son. The intentionality of Jesus. He hasn't forgotten why He came. It's not this random thing where He comes to earth and He thinks, I think I'll live in the Galilee. I think I'll heal some people. You know, i got some things on my mind that I'd like to share with you. It wasn't this random guy. It was on purpose every step of the way. And so his purpose began not with the nations, but with the nation, Israel. He came to them first. Paul understood that. And when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, Paul was heartbroken and wrote in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. To whom belong the adoption of the sons? 
and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Let me remind you that once again with humility and thanksgiving we owe a great debt to the people of Israel. Because it was through Israel that God sent Mashiach. It was through Israel that God sent the promises. Promises that we so often co-opt for ourselves in the church that are not church promises. They are promises given and made to Israel first. And the first commission was sent first to the people of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By the way, this is a critical election issue as well. Something else that's not talked about a lot. Although it does come up every single election, where does the candidate stand on Israel? The tiny little postage stamp country in the Mideast, who cares? Well, God cares. And our nation has had a long history of supporting Israel and for good measure. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 60, verse 12. (coughs) For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you, Israel, will perish. Can I say that any more clearly? The nation that will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. Oh, that's Old Testament stuff. I see nothing that says that that declaration has ended. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, in fact, goes on and says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure. Where is America in that? Are we one of the many kingdoms that will be destroyed and wiped out because we turned our backs on Israel. Now, some have wondered and asked, and it's a good question, why would God set up a millennial kingdom on earth? I know some of you pre-millennial, whatever you call yourself, people, think that Jesus is going to come back, oh, and He's going to rule and reign out of Jerusalem for a thousand years, and I say I agree absolutely with that. Well, why would God do that? A simple answer, gang, is because He's true to His Word. Because He said He would. Well, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, a lot of things God does don't make sense to me, but I'm not that bright. A lot of things that I read in Scripture that, that blow me away, and I wonder how, why, I don't get, ah, and I have the, the list of questions. But I'm not God. And the one thing that I know is when God says He's going to do something, God does it. And He said He was going to do it. There's going to be a thousand, Revelation chapter 20, six times the Scriptures point out a thousand years. Six times. To be absolutely clear for those slower among us to get it. (laughs) He's true to His Word. And His Word overflows with promises made to the people of Israel. Promises that a kingdom would be reestablished for Israel after falling. Would be reestablished. There are lists lists and lists of dozens of these that that we could look at, but for time's sake, turn over to Isaiah 49. Let's let's just look, look at one. Isaiah 49, verse 1. And watch this. This is it's incredible. Isaiah 49.1 Right in the middle of your Bibles. This one's easy to find. It starts off, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. So I thought it was particularly important for us to read. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. 
In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver, which basically indicates this is a son being talked about. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Now, as I read these verses, I want you to think about this. Who is speaking here? Don't answer it now. But keep that question alive in your minds. Who is the speaker in these verses? Verse 4. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. And, and, and quick side note, I just got to share this. That verse I could say, as a Christian in America, I could speak those very words. I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You know, when I cast my vote, oftentimes in Washington State, the thought that runs through my mind is, like, it's going to make any difference. But you know what? Even if what you're voting for doesn't come to pass, even if the person isn't elected, the choice you make and the vote you make makes a huge difference. There are things going on, gang, in the spiritual realm. When we stand up for truth, when we make a place, a home, for truth to be declared in our lives and in our churches and in our families, there is something big that happens. You make a difference, even casting that one vote. Remember that when you go into the ballot box. Verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? And now I'm getting confused because I thought it was Israel. Is Israel going to restore Israel? How does that work? I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Okay, so who is the servant? Some say the servant in this passage is Israel. Some say, no, the servant is Messiah. After all, whose mouth is described by the phrase two-edged sword? Only one person in Scripture has a two-edged sword for a mouth. Revelation 1.16, Revelation 19.15, and that's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So is it Jesus Or is it Israel? And if the servant is the Messiah, why is the servant called Israel back in verse 3? I'll tell you why, and listen closely. It's a subtle truth. This is a prophecy of Jesus the Messiah. But he's called Israel because Jesus, in and of himself, fulfills everything that Israel could not. This, is, this original call, when Isaiah wrote this down, Isaiah is probably thinking as he writes it, okay, Israel is the light to the nations. Israel is, is going to somehow redeem itself. Israel is, is the child that God called out of his mother's womb. Israel, Jacob, the people of Jacob. So this must be that the Israelites are going to be the light of the nations. You know what? God knew before they got to the promised land that they weren't going to make it. God knew from the very beginning when He called Abraham out of paganism and into monotheism, He knew that the people coming out of Abraham were not going to make it. And so He provided a way that Jesus could epitomize in His his person and His work, Jesus could epitomize God's call to Israel and fulfill it in Himself. And so Jesus is Israel. Jesus did what Israel could not do Replacing them. Now don't get me wrong, I'm going to talk on replacement theology here. But He became what Israel could not. He does the same thing for you. He does the same thing for me. He became for me 
what I could. I could not bear the cross. I could not bear the righteous requirements of God. Jesus became that. But what's tragic is even as the Lord called Israel to this kind of success to be a light to the nations, even as Jesus commissioned His twelve to go out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, He knew the first commission would be rejected outright. So why do it? Why waste the time? I took Cheryl down to Seattle last night. She flew out this morning for Ghana. Keep her in your prayers. We were having dinner and talking about this issue. Why waste our time? Because it seems like there are certain things that it doesn't really matter what you do. The world's just going the way it's going. And so why not just hole up? Why not just gather together with other Christians, keep it to ourselves, hang together, maybe invite in a few here and there, but, but let's just, why waste our time with evangelism if it's just not going to work anyway? And especially Jesus here, why do it? Because truth is truth. And truth always stands. And truth always prevails. Jesus went to the people of Israel because across 1,500 years, from one prophet to the next to the next, He promised He would. I will go first to Israel. And I will proclaim the truth to Israel. Now hold that thought. We're going to come back to it in just a second. Go back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. Verse 7, the, the, the first commission continues. First, the people were sent first to Israel. The apostles were. Secondly, the first commission gang was supernaturally fortified. Look at verse 7. As you go, Jesus said, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. Freely you receive. Freely give. And what's amazing here, what's amazing is to this point, the apostles had not been healers. They had been disciples, like everybody else, following Jesus, listening to the teaching, amazed when He did amazing things. But they themselves hadn't done anything powerful. And yet, the first commission was supernaturally fortified. When I was a kid, growing up, I always looked for the cereal boxes and the cereal had to say, you know, vitamin fortified. So I figured Saturday mornings when I got up and had my Lucky Charms that they would actually last me for the whole day. I didn't understand why that didn't work. Supernaturally fortified, there was supernatural power and the Hebrew prophets gang said that there would be. Over and over, they made claim that this Mashiach, this anointed one of God, when He came, was going to show that authority through supernatural power. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength. Note that strength. And the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The word strength there is Geburah in the Hebrew. It sounds like a cheerleader's term. Geburah! But the word, and I say that, remember it. Geburah, it literally means mighty acts of power. So Messiah would have the spirit of mighty acts and power on him. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 say, The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. What accompanied the teaching of Jesus Christ? The blind received their sight. And the deaf heard. And the mute leapt like deer. The lame left like deer. And, well, the mute probably left like deer too, going, Yahoo, I can speak, but you get my point. The miracles accompanied the preaching of Jesus Christ. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist sent word from prison to Jesus asking for verification, Jesus told John's disciples, Go tell John what you see and what you hear. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why didn't Jesus just tell John's followers, yeah, tell John I'm the guy. Are you the one? Yes, I am. Go tell him. Jesus doesn't answer that way. He says, tell him what you see. Explain to him what's going on out here. John was in prison. He was a little bummed out, probably a little unsure. Did I get the wrong guy? And so Jesus told his disciples, you tell him what's going on, what I'm doing. Nicodemus, the um, Pharisee, came to Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 2. After hours, I like to call this story Nick at night. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus knew. The prophet said, this is what's going to happen. Mashiach is going to come and signs and wonders will be part of this ministry. But as I said before, so far the twelve had only been with Jesus, seeing Him do these things. They had not done them themselves. So Jesus commissions the apostles to go out as His representatives to Israel, but it wasn't in word alone. Come on in, guys, but just come in quiet. Kids are done. I'm not even half finished. Sit tight. It's not true. Not true. I always wonder what you guys think, you know, when, when we're strolling along here and we're reading... Do you do that? Because I used to do it in church all the time. I used to just go, okay, come on, man. We're just, just that, okay, land the plane, land. I'm flying. Let's keep going. When Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, it was not in word alone, but it was in power and mighty deeds. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul said, Man, when I came and I spoke to you, I didn't want you to think it was just some new guy with a new philosophy, a new idea. I wanted you to see and know that it was God. And so the miracles verified the preaching. And note that... The acts of power are preceded by this command in verse 7. As you go, preach. As you go, preach. The power had a purpose. Jesus did not empower His apostles to go out and have fun and freak people out. Scare people or thrill people. That was not what it was about. The power had a purpose. It wasn't for miracle's sake or power for the sake of performance. Remember, we've talked about this. The miracles authenticated the authority of Jesus. And the miracles conveyed the compassion of Christ. But they were not about spiritual thrill-seeking. There's far too much of that in the world today. Oh, there's a buzz. There's something going on down in Florida. Check it out! Why? Is that going to increase your faith? If I could raise someone from the dead here on a Sunday morning, would that increase your faith? I hope not. I hope what increases your faith is hearing the Word and trusting in the Lord. I love what Vernon McGee says about this. He says, It's interesting to note that folk in our day who use Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, people who use that verse as their own personal commission ignore the next verse. Freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Interesting. McGee goes on to say, some time ago I suggested to a so-called faith healer that he go to the hospitals where they really needed him. But it's interesting that these folk have to be in a place where an offering can be taken. 
Here's a new thought as to why there's so much miraculous that goes on in third world countries. Because they can't pay for it. Because it's free. And so the Spirit of God is available and able to work powerfully for free instead of people trying to line their pockets with the offerings of people that the latest revival. And I'll tell you something, I think that makes God sick. Well, so are you saying you don't really believe that the supernatural happens today? I didn't say that. Of course I believe that it does. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, read it. We have the spiritual gifts available to us, which includes gifts of healing, and includes working of miracles. Those things can be and are available today, but gang, if it doesn't magnify Jesus, the supernatural is furious. It's unnecessary. That's the first thing that you got to look for, that I look for. Does the supernatural magnify the Lord? Does it lift up and praise and bring honor and glory to Jesus? Then there's probably something to it. But if it's about the man or the person, King, followers of Jesus are not sent to represent our own interests, but His. And so for me, if it doesn't magnify Jesus, I'm not interested. The power is real, but the real purpose behind the power is the preaching of the kingdom of God. Of course, even with all that powerful display, the sick healed, the dead raised, the lepers cleansed, death, the, the demons cast out, even with all that going on, Israel missed their Messiah. How is that even possible? Some, some people today, you've probably heard it, say, if I could see Jesus, or if I could just experience one of those miracles that He did, I could believe. Not necessarily. Because the miracles were rampant in Jesus' day. And they did not believe. Third thing to note here, in this first commission that was sent first to Israel and supernaturally fortified, the first commission was secured by faith. It came by faith. It's always by faith. Faith is is of tantamount importance to Jesus. He wants us to learn. It's been called the lingua franca of eternity. The common language of God is the language of faith. That's why he didn't tell John the Baptist, yeah, I'm the Messiah, just tell him. He said, look at what's going on. And believe in faith. Jesus would tell a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Remember this one? Lazarus a poor man, and there's a rich man, and they both die at the same time. Well, Lazarus in the parable goes to Abraham's bosom, a paradise side of Hades. And the rich man goes to torment. And the rich man looks across this chasm, and he calls out to Abraham and says, Abraham, can you have Lazarus just dip, dip his finger in, in, in water and, and put it on my tongue? I'm, I'm dying over here. And Abraham says, dude, there's no way we're crossing this chasm. This is Rick's translation. I can't get across there, and you can't get over here. It's impassable. And so, uh, the rich man says, well, well, at least, at least, and I quote Luke 16.30, if someone goes to my father and my brother, send someone to them, because if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, so they don't have to be where I am. Jesus said in Luke 16.31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Which is exactly what would happen in Jesus' life. He would rise from the dead, and people still would not believe Don't think that miracles and powerful works are what bring about faith. The Word brings faith. All the miracles in the world will not convince a person who refuses to receive the message by faith. Hebrews 11.1 tells us, and listen to this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Did you get my email, Lisa, on that? Good. I want you to pray for John and Lisa Adelot. And this is only the first of two times I'm going to embarrass them this morning. But 
I want you to pray for them because Lisa and John are trying to decide what to do right now. She was supposed to fly to Ghana on Thursday um, and to, to file paperwork and, and for their daughter, Monica, who's there waiting to be adopted. And apparently right now there's some paperwork issues and, and so, so Lisa's wondering, should I go, hoping that that gets cleared up? Or do I wait? What do I do? Do I step out in faith? And so I, I was, uh, just replied this to Lisa, I'll share it with you, that we have a real mixed up view of faith. Faith is not blind. Faith is not just stepping out. Faith is not Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade and the leap from the lion's mouth. This is one of the stupidest scenes in movie history. <laughs> I had faith! No, you didn't! You're a moron! <laughs> What they should have done in that scene is not have the little hidden rock pathway there, had nothing there, and have him fall to his death because that is not faith. (laughs) Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And what I told Lisa, and I'll tell you all, and Lisa, here's the deal. If you have an absolute assurance and conviction, the two of you, that you're supposed to go, then you go. But if you're not sure, it's not faith. Faith is not taking a wild leap in the dark. Les spoke on Wednesday night about prayer and and I shared, go to the website and listen to it. It was great. And one of the things he said is, when we're talking about how do I know if God is speaking to me? I'll tell you what, how you know. You know. Because there's no missing it when it's really God. If you think you're making it up, good chance you probably are. (laughs) Faith. This first commission, gang, without faith, Hebrews 11.6, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And that's how we are called, like the apostles, called to be people who live by faith, and who trust in the Lord, regardless of what happens on Tuesday. Whatever the outcome of the election, doesn't change my faith in the least. I'll tell you, I am praying hard for a godly outcome. That's not going to change how I believe. Whatever happens, I trust the Lord. Where does America stand on the threshold of its future? Not on faith. Not from where I sit. Well, this first commission was sent first to Israel, supernaturally fortified, secured by faith. i got one more thing to tell you, so sit tight. Did Jesus' plan fail? Was the first commission a bust? Not exactly. Paul said in Romans 11.11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, Paul writes, how much more will their fulfillment be? Israel's rejection of the first commission flung wide open the door for the great commission to all nations just as the Lord knew it would. But don't miss this. Even as the lost sheep of the house of Israel... Even as they were rejecting Messiah, God was planning their future. Let me put this in ways that are a way that I think is a little easier to understand. Talking to Lisa, and here's the second embarrassment for you. Talking to Lisa on Thursday, and I have their permission to share this. And uh, she stood in the living way of my uh, entryway of my house, and, and we we're talking about Monica, a little girl in Ghana, they're adopting, and, and the situation with that. Many of you know that um, a couple of years back or so, Lisa and John were going through a hard time in their marriage. Many of you know that they were, they were separated at that, at that time. Lisa told me that they realized that the moment 
that Monica was born into this world was in the middle of their separation. That even while they were separated, in her own words, even as we're in the middle of our sin, God was planning to give us a little girl. That is unbelievable. The love of a father who has a hope and a future planned for you, even in the midst of the worst of the worst, even when you cannot see past the cloud of your own sin and despair and hopelessness, your father, as he did with Israel, is planning a future and a hope. That verse, Jeremiah 29.11, he promises to give a hope and a future, that's for Israel. And we like that promise. And we like to quote it a lot ourselves as Christians. But you know what? He spoke it to Israel while they were in captivity. i got a future and a hope plan for you. We're in chains here, Lord. Yeah. Isn't it great? Because i got a hope for you. And i got something planned and something is coming. And when John and Lisa couldn't see it, God said, I want this little girl born because I have a family for her. She can't go to him yet. But they're going to be ready at the right time. And I'm going to bring her home. Remember that when you see them walk in with her. In the midst of Israel's rebellion, another child was born. Both the First Commission and the Great Commission depend on Him. As Ben read at communion time, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.4 But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us together alive with Christ by grace you have been saved. He's raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now I've said before have you been there yet? Because Paul said past tense He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places and I don't know about you but I don't know the floor plan. I haven't seen it yet. But the hope and the promise is so absolutely sure that Paul writes it down as if it already happened. Love that. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Gang, the last thing to note there is the first commission is sure to be fulfilled. When the promise was to go out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, don't you dare for a moment think that God has forgotten about his people. That promise is going to be fulfilled. He's coming back. And He will save a remnant from Israel. Why would He do that? So that we, with Israel, would recognize the mercy and the grace of God that does not depend on us. It depends only on Him. Now, unfortunately, aside from Israel, I'm not so optimistic nationally. I know Israel has a future and a hope. I don't know if America does. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates the future of our country. There is no promise that says America will stand and go right on in. There's nothing there, gang. Now, if you look into our country's history, and I would recommend to you that you read the book The Light and the Glory, you will see that this country was founded on the very principles we've been talking about. Christian values, Judeo-Christian morals and ethics and standards, and yet our country has tried to push those out of the schools, of the home, even of the church, keeping the church silent from addressing them in the political process. I want to tell you this. Do what you will. But when you go to vote, don't vote party line. You vote Jesus Christ. You vote based on the values and the spiritual truths that Jesus has given you. You look at the issues and go, Jesus, what would you do with this? You look at Obama and McCain and you go, which one of these two guys is going to promote Life. 
marriage between a man and a woman. Which one of these guys, by their own words, I mean, I am not, listen, if you think I've slandered Barack Obama this morning, I haven't said anything that he didn't say himself. Why are Christians so blind to this? I've got good friends in California I talked to last week. Blew my mind. Yeah, we're thinking because thinking we might you know, vote for Obama because it's kind of cool. Rick, are you saying you can't be Christian and vote for Obama? I'm saying look at what the man stands for. Look at what he is going to promote. Is it Christian? Okay, forget the word Christian. Is it biblical? Is it moral? Yeah, but, but what about all the other things? I mean, he wants to be kind to the animals. Great! I am not a frog. I want to invite the elders to come up with me here for a moment. So, shepherds, come on up here. Gang, America is absent from end-time prophecy in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that, that gives us indication one way or another as to what's going to happen to this country. Our only hope as a country, and hear me clearly on this, our only hope as a country is that we stand for Jesus, aligned with Israel, and we stand for truth. When that goes away, America will go with it. And I don't say that as a threat. I'm not worried. And those of you who are concerned and freaking out, what if, what if this happens? Hey, you know what? God's still God. And He's working out a perfect plan. And we may go into a terrific period of persecution before the end, is, the, the end comes. It's okay. Because I trust my Lord. But in the meantime, we have a responsibility to stand for truth. I want to invite you this morning, if you want to uh, just join us in this, to stand up. We're going to pray for our country, our nation. Pray for the selection that's coming. So let's, let's do that. Let's stand together right now.